and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. A pair of South Sudanese delegations talk about peace and economic cooperation with Sudanese officials in Khartoum. South Sudan will continue to pay the oil transit fees and technical teams from the ministries of finance and petroleum of both countries will engage in discussions on issues related to oil agreement. And authorities investigate the shooting death of a wildlife warden in central Equatoria state. During their day-to-day activities and movement in the park, they were ambushed by a group, well-armed group. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Two separate South Sudanese delegations are meeting this week with Sudanese officials in Khartoum, and both delivered handwritten letters from President Salva Kiir. The South Sudanese officials and their Sudanese counterparts are discussing, among other things, the fees South Sudan pays to Sudan to refine and export its oil. Michael Atit has more for VOA from Khartoum. The first delegation headed by President Kiir's advisor on special programs, Ambassador Benjamin Ball, arrived in Khartoum on Tuesday and met with the chairman of Sudan Sovereign Council, General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan. The group includes Finance Minister Dier Tongor and the Minister of Petroleum, Poth Kang Chual. Speaking to reporters shortly after meeting with al-Burhan, Ngor says Kiir's written message to Burhan focuses on the neighboring country's oil deal. South Sudan will continue to pay the oil transit fees and technical teams from the ministries of finance and petroleum of both countries will engage in discussions on issues related to oil agreement, including oil transit fees. In 2013, South Sudan agreed to pay Sudan $9.10 per barrel as a transit fee and $15 per barrel as part of more than $3 billion package called the Transitional Financial Arrangements or TFA. The TFA deal was aimed at helping Sudan after losing a substantial portion of its oil revenue when South Sudan succeeded from Sudan in 2011. The deal was extended in December 2019 until March 2022. On February 24th, the two countries signed an agreement on technical arrangements related to transporting, processing and exporting the South Sudanese crude and oil used to run Sudan's Umdebeker electric station and the Khartoum refinery. Ngor says talks about the financial arrangements between the two countries will continue this week in Khartoum. You know, Sudan... South Sudan pays 28,000 barrels a day to Sudan, and this is for the operational costs of refineries, including generating electricity. We also would like to revisit this agreement and to see how we can go forward. The second delegation led by Kir's security advisor, Tut Gatluak, also met with Al-Burhan and delivered a handwritten note from the president regarding the Juba peace implementation matrix signed last month. Gatluak says 
the Sudanese signatories have demonstrated a commitment toward peace and stability in their country. We came to appreciate the big role played by Sudanese political forces and signatories to the Juba Peace Agreement for the understanding and consensus that led to the signing of the new matrix. That was a good gesture and we believe that dialogue is the best tool in any political disagreement. For his part, Al-Burhan says Sudan is keen on broadening its strong ties with South Sudan. Michael Atit for VOA News, Khartoum. In part two of an interview with former Trinity Energy employee Biswick Tiamalu Kaswaswa, the self-described whistleblower says he received death threats and was arrested in a neighboring country when he tried to leave South Sudan after exposing alleged corruption and other violations at the company. The century's latest report on oil deals in South Sudan include charges of massive corruption, tax evasion, and money laundering. Kaswaswa tells my colleague John Tanza that when his bosses at Trinity refused Used to investigate his allegations, he told the world. Yes, that is true and that is correct. And for your own information, the time that I got into trouble, it was the time when I was facing so much resistance. Up to the point that the director, Annie uh, Rutere, wrote email to the chief executive officer terminating our contract because I was doing something that was contrary to what he was expecting. I was there to provide checks and balances. I was there to guide, to give guidance. And uh, you, could, you, were, you could be so surprised that most of the recommendations that I was making were deliberately rejected by her and her team. So... It was a time bomb. That's why I had to decide to go to the embassy to report. And then after that, my plan was to communicate with a lot of international communities so that the truth should be known to the world and to the South Sudanese. To talk to us about uh, what happened to you when you left the country. I, I read the Century Report and it said you were arrested in Rwanda and then brought back to South Sudan and uh, put in jail. Talk to us about that experience. I left in Juba, passing through Kigali on my way to Dar es Salaam to report to the embassy uh, because our life was very hard in Juba and I was. What do you mean? To... What do you mean your life was very hard in Juba? Could you explain? The email that Annie Kutere wrote to the chief executive officer, in that email, he said that if we happen to find that you guys have uh, have sold a truck of fuel, you are going to die in jail and you are going to be killed. That statement alone broke my heart. And the meeting that I had with the chief executive officer, he even emphasized that this week, this is the time for us to go home. So I left. And while I was about to board the plane to Dar es Salaam, the authorities called me at the airport. Uh, I went there. They said, you have a case. You are traveling with 350,000 US dollars. I told them that I don't know that amount of money. What I have is between $26,000 to uh, $27,000. They arrested me. They're saying that your employer, Trinity Energy Limited in Juba, has launched a complaint. 
and they are saying that you are traveling with 350,000 US dollars cash with you. I showed the authorities the amount of money that I had. I explained the source of the money. I showed them the money and they told me to wait at the airport. So I waited the whole night until the morning when they said, we are very sorry, Trinity has not provided us sufficient information. Here is your passport. You can proceed with your journey. My next flight was at 11 p.m. the following day. So, and which airport was uh, this? Was it the Kigali International Airport? This was Kigali International Airport. Now, when I was about to board the plane the second day, an official came and said, follow me, grab my passport. And I asked the person, where am I going? Said, just follow me. I went downstairs. I found the immigration checkpoint. I asked the, the, the staff at the immigration checkpoint to say, where am I going? He said, I don't know anything. Just follow this guy. And I found myself in the police custody at the airport. From the police custody at the airport, they took me straight to uh, Rwandan Investigation Bureau, RIP. They asked me about the same case. I told them, this is the money that I have. They confiscated my money. They confiscated my passport and they confiscated my phone. And they said, where are you living? I showed them the evidence to say, I'm going to Dalaslam. In fact, our contract has been terminated. So I'm reporting to the embassy. I'm going to the embassy to report on this issue. That's Biswig Tiamalu Kaswaswa, a former employee of Trinity Energy Company. He was speaking with my colleague John Tanza. Tomorrow in their final segment, Kaswaswa discusses his treatment at the company. Authorities in South Sudan are condemning an attack over the weekend in which a wildlife warden was shot dead and three foreign nationals were injured during an ambush near Bandagingo National Park. Kamis Ading Ading, Director General at the Ministry of Wildlife and Tourism, says the Australian, French and South African nationals were flown to Nairobi for further medical treatment. Deng Gai Deng has the story for VOA from Boer. Brigadier General Kamist Adiang Ding, Director General at the Ministry of Wildlife and Tourism, says the deceased warden was a South Sudanese national, while the injured were wildlife experts from Australia, France and South Africa. During their day-to-day activities and movement in the park, they were ambushed by a group, well-armed group, and actually they were, uh, they were together with expertise that are working in the park. One Australian, one one from French, another one from South Africa, and seven of our, of our rangers. So they were attacked, and our one of our officers lost his life immediately. By, he was shot in the head. The other one sustained injuries in the arm, and the expertise were also shot, one in the chest. And uh, two on uh, the other two on the legs. Ding says one of the injured is still undergoing medical treatment in Juba, while the others were flown outside the country for more serious injuries. We managed to bring them from there to Juba, and they've uh, gone undergone uh, medical attention. But for the foreigners, the, the two critical cases were flown to Nairobi and likely to South Africa. Uh, the other one is still here good, there is, his condition is good. And uh, we took the dead one to his home area in Torit, 
General Ding says the Ministry of Wildlife and Tourism is investigating the attack and will arrest the gunman. He urged the public in general and park visitors to remain calm. No, these are normal things. They, they haven't happened in America. And uh, such things cannot stop us from doing our duties. We are going on and we are positive things will improve. It's a matter of time. Yeah, we should, uh, we should uh, remind my countrymen, wherever you are, that we should start behaving. I mean, this elements of just killing innocent people doesn't make sense. The three wildlife experts who were shot are with the African Park Network and arrived in the country last weekend. The motive behind the attack remained unclear. The African Park Network is an NGO that manages national parks and protected areas on behalf of governments across Africa to benefit people and wildlife. For VOA News, I am Dengaiding in Bor. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, a winner has been declared in the Nigeria presidential election. Find out who after the break. South Sudan's general education ministry says it is concerned about the huge number of children out of school across the country. The undersecretary in the general education ministry says more than two and a half million school-aged children remain at home. Manyang David Mayar has the details for VOA from Juba. Kuyok Abol Kuyok, the undersecretary in South Sudan's general education ministry, says 2.8 million children, mostly girls, are not attending school for two main reasons. There are places where schools are not there, but I think the main issue is teachers. Uh, we need to make sure that teachers, teachers come back to, to school. We are doing a campaign. The minister uh, is organizing a community conference in Warab next week. We'll be five days in Warab in Kwajok talking to chiefs, traditional leaders, women groups, uh, civil society groups about education especially girls' education. Last year, President Salfakir directed relevant government ministries to ensure that primary and secondary education is free throughout all public schools. Kuyok says the general education minister has written letters to state governments calling on them to implement the president's directive. As part of the directive, Kuyok says the Ministry of Finance and Planning has released 1 billion South Sudanese pounds in capitation grants to support primary schools with logistics so that parents are not charged registration fees. The grant targets more than 4,000 public schools across the country, including government, community-run and faith-based schools. We must make, we must make sure that uh, schools don't prevent them don't, uh, do not prevent children from attending classes because they don't have uniform, okay? They have to be rolled, whether they have uniform or they do not have uniform, all right? Uh, so so, so there, there should be no any reason for a school, for a public school, to prevent children from registering. Once we learn that a school is asking parents to pay money, uh, there, will be, there will be consequences. As we speak now, some headmasters are in trouble for asking parents 
to pay the registration fee. Kuyok says the government will embark on a public campaign to educate parents and school administrators and teachers about the free public education program for children. Some school administrators and parents in Juba say the new program has altered school operations in the South Sudanese capital. One head teacher of a government-owned primary school who spoke on condition of anonymity for fear of reprisal told South Sudan in focus his school is still requiring registration fees be paid by parents until the government sends the grant money. Concerning that, concerning this uh, degree, because until now there's, there's no money that released to, 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 for the school to, to run the, 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 the service. Till now, since uh, this, the school opened in 6th of uh, this month, until now there's no any uh, refund agent, there's no any money that... And now we are still waiting. And then... When the parents come and then we are registering. When the parents come, we are, we are, we are expecting that to register the people without anything. The head teacher says the school had been charging parents 32,000 South Sudanese pounds in what is known as parent support funds to the school. At the same school, a parent who brought her daughter for registration told South Sudan in focus she was asked to pay 34,000 South Sudanese pounds for both registration and school fees. She said she is not aware of the government directive of free education for school-aged children. Alec Regina, another parent in Juba, says her three children all stay home because the school her children used to attend has continued to ask for fees. My children are staying at home because the school administrators are demanding 20,000 SSP in order to register my girls in a school. They told me that they cannot register my children without the registration fee. That is why my children are staying at home, because registration fee is not there. I have not had the free education order from the government. In recent years, none of South Sudan's highest performing students came from public schools. Education ministry officials say that is because private schools pay better and have better facilities than public schools. Kuyok says the government has increased the budget for education from 6% of the total fiscal year budget to just 12.5%. Kuyok says aside from providing free public education, the government is also addressing issue of unpaid teacher salaries. There are no arrears now as we speak. No arrears. So we hope that uh, finance uh, you know, uh, commits itself. So it's not going to be an easy thing. We must make sure that the schools are there, but of course there must be teachers. If there are no teachers, then we would, be in, we would not have education. The South Sudan government provides cavitation grants to government-aided community and church-based primary schools in South Sudan. The United Kingdom provides cavitation grants to government-aided community and church-based secondary schools under a project known as Girls Education South Sudan, or JES. Kuyok says the government increased funding for education to beef up school enrollment. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayor in Juba. The winner of Nigeria's hotly contested presidential election is Bola Ahmed. 
Telnubu from the country's ruling party. Telnubu won the vote despite the unpopularity of outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari. His main rival, Atiku Abubakar, bolted 29 percent, and the Labour Party's Peter Obi got 25 percent. Their parties had earlier dismissed the poll as a sham and demanded a rerun. Tanubu is one of Nigeria's richest politicians. He based his campaign on his track record of rebuilding the country's biggest city, Lagos, while he was governor. An international relations expert wants the president-elect to focus on three key domestic issues when he takes office. David Awaro, professor of international relations and strategic studies at the University of Lagos, tells reporter Mike Mbonye that Tanubu should focus on security, economy, and national reconciliation. Security, security, security. Uh, because security is at the heart of the development that Nigeria and Nigerians seek. Um, the country is insecure, north, east, northwest, southeast, and to some extent to south, south. Um, there has to be coordinated, concerted effort to address, you know, um, these problems um, so that Nigeria will be secured. When Nigeria is secured, other things can then be built on it. Uh, there is not much you can achieve, you know, that will be enduring, you know, if uh, security, if the country is not secure. For instance, in the northwest, now people can go to farm. The other day, over 60 farmers were slaughtered in the northeast, and that scared others from going to the, you know, things like that. So security will be the first, uh, you know, priority you focus on. Then, of course, second, the economy. We can all see that the economy is not where it ought to be. The debts are mounting. The debts are so huge now, and they are mounting. Uh, Productivity is low. Um, uh, The industrial sector is not performing well. Uh, We have this subsidy that is taking, you know, a huge chunk of the country's, uh, uh, you know, earnings. So all of those will need to be attended to so that the economy can grow. And then the, 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 the well-being of Nigeria can improve. Unemployment can reduce another. So second is economy. And then third is bringing Nigerians together, reconciliation, as I talked about before. Nigerians are divided, and the division is, you know, uh, hampering development of the country. There's need to bring everybody on board, make everybody have a sense of belonging, run an inclusive government, and ensure that nobody is uh, made to feel uh, it is not, it's not wanted, you know, within the system. On the foreign scene, sir, what should be the priorities of the administration of Ahmed Bolatinubu? What should be the priorities of his administration on the foreign scene, sir? Uh, incidentally, the line between the domestic and the foreign is getting more and more blood, arising from the intensification of linkages, you know, which have accompanied globalization. For instance, I talked about security within the country. The Nigeria's government, Nigerians need support from the outside to be able to achieve it. So the foreign and the domestic are actually linked at you know different layers at different levels. Uh, but regarding focus, of course, Nigeria cannot run away from that focus on Africa. For instance, um, Africa being the centerpiece of Nigeria's foreign policy, the Nigeria will need to you know we cannot run away from focusing on Africa being the centerpiece of the country's foreign policy. Uh, what Dr. Namdi Azikiwe over 60 years ago. Uh, described as uh, the historic mission and manifest destiny of Nigeria on the African continent. But because of the size of Nigeria, you know, in Africa and the number of blacks within Nigeria, over 200 million, uh, Nigeria must, you know, take responsibility for events in Africa.
uh, Africans and in the diaspora. Uh, then, of course, the concentric circle will still need to be maintained, in which the first layer of the circle are Nigerians, second layer, they are Nigerians' immediate neighbors, Chad, Cameroon, uh, Niger, Benin Republic. You know, this uh, insurgency in Nigeria facing the northeast and now going to the northwest, collaboration with the, these neighbors is critical to ability to tackle the insurgency and, of course, the banditry. That was David Awo Rawo, Professor of International Relations and Strategic Studies at the University of Lagos. He was speaking with reporter Mike Mbonye. We wrap up our series on U.S. Black History Month today with a conversation about slavery. In 1619, a full year before the Mayflower arrived in America, a cargo ship called the White Lion carried a group of kidnapped people from what is now Angola to America's eastern shore. Those people were sold into slavery and experienced unspeakable brutality, as did hundreds of thousands of Africans for generations to come. That story was never told in U.S. history books. So how are U.S. elementary schools doing now? Are children learning the real story of slavery in America? I put that question to Ibram X. Kendi, author and editor of the New York Times bestselling book, 400 Souls, A Community History of American African America. So I think it's depending on the school or the district or the state, it's going in, in, in either direction. You're saying there still is pushback, and depending on where you live and where you're trying to teach. Yes. Your book includes a, a lot of short stories and commentaries, as well as trying to set the the record straight a little bit straighter, at least on U.S. history, how it really unfolded. Can you just pick a few examples, kind of give our audience some idea of what's in your book? There's so many different forms of blackness that's portrayed, which then allows us to really be able to convey the entirety of this community. A lot of white people in our country say, you know, you're so angry and they're, they're kind of afraid to deal with it. And what about the, the retribution factor? And we shouldn't have to pay for our ancestors' mistakes. How do you feel about that? I think there are, there are, um, People who, who imagine that I personally am angry, which shows me that they've actually never seen me speak and they actually haven't read my work. And then there are others who don't want to acknowledge that there is a such thing, for instance, as transformational or I should say transgenerational wealth. So the, the idea that uh, there isn't a legacy or that, you know, past generations can't benefit from racist policies and pass those benefits on. People know that that is, people should know that that's true. And if they don't know it, then I think they have to just take stock about reality. Besides this book, 400 Souls, you also uh, do a podcast called Be an Anti-Racist and, and the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Talk about that a little bit. The title is pretty self-explanatory, but just go into a little bit like what you probe in this podcast of yours and, and how you deal with people who just, they may not even think that they're racist, but they do things that, you know, may not sit right with you and other people. In terms of, um, you know, people believing that they're not racist, well, you know, in my work, I show that there's really no such thing as not racist. So either being racist or anti-racist, we're either recognizing racial equality or racial hierarchy. We're either supporting equitable policies or inequitable policies, and that's what I'm trying to show. 
That's Ibram X. Kendi, author of 400 Souls and professor at Boston University. He was speaking with me yesterday from Boston. And that wraps it up for us today. Remember to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you missed this broadcast, head over to www.voaafrica.com backslash South Sudan. We now leave you with the song Sambala Sambala by Genesis Da Veteran. We've been listening to Sambala Sambala by Genesis the Veteran. I'm your host, Carol Van Dam, in Washington. Thanks for joining us today. And remember to tune in tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Samba